Leanne Wilson is a Bidjara and Karakara First Nation descendant and she acknowledges her South Sea Islander heritage. She was born, raised and spent most of her time in Barkledon in central western Queensland. She began life as a Chillaroo. She's gone on to do wonderful things at national and international level. She's a businesswoman and entrepreneur and she's my friend. And I can't think of anybody I'd rather be talking about what to do in our society today around the notion of our history and telling the truth about Australia. Let's go. Leanne, welcome. It's just lovely to be chatting with you. Uh, thank you very much, Phil. And um, I'll have to teach you how to say Barcaldine properly, not Barcaldine. So oh, my goodness. I'm so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> No, that's okay. Everybody says that. Indeed. Indeed. I'm so sorry. Leanne, why don't you start and just tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, look, I'd love to. Um, as you were just pointing out, I'm sort of born in the bush in a little place called Barcaldon in central western Queensland. So on the map of Queensland, it's about the centre uh, of that map. And uh, so I was born there, went, did all my education there. Um, primary school right through to high school um, in that formal sense but also a lot of my sort of cultural education was in that space as well where I learned about um, how to be with the country and how to be um, um, you know, with, with, um, with each other I guess in a sense so I'm, I'm formed by that small community and those um, extended family members that um, I had the absolute privilege and pleasure of being raised by. Uh, at that time. Family's really important to you, isn't it? I think, you know, family for me is is the essence of, of who I am. And so fam when I talk about family, I talk about extended family and, um, and my grandmother, my grandfather in particular as well. And um, and all of those aunties and uncles that, um, that I had the opportunity to be influenced by. And so... You know, when you have that extended family environment, um, you are rich, enriched tenfold. Uh, so, yes, family is incredibly important to me. And correct me if I'm wrong, but an Aboriginal family operates differently to the way other families operate, that, that extended family. Do you want to talk a little bit about, for the sake of our listeners, what that, how that operates? Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's interesting you asked me this, that question and it's probably only now that I can sort of uh, respond to that in a way that makes sense um, for people. And I guess, um, um, you know, I just thought everybody grew up in an extended family environment and that everybody had many mothers and many fathers and, um, and, and people had responsibility for your, for your well-being. Um, but what I've come to learn is that that's not the case. And so um, for me in particular, uh, you know, I have had you know, a grandmother to, that helped raise me, a grandfather that was there as well, uh, aunties that were always around um, as well. And so I guess the difference is that in an extended family environment, you're not only raised by different people, but they have resp different responsibilities for your well-being and your nurturing as well. And so in a you know, mainstream family or a nuclear family, um, it's really just the mum and dad. And so, you know, mum and dad are often worn out because they don't have that um, extended family um, support network around them. So, you know, even when I was having, when I had my boys and they're, they're older now, 
you know, I'm a mother that never got tired because I had my grandmother, um, their great grandmother, I had aunties. Um, and so there were many, many nurturers uh, in the nest, um, you know, as I was raising my boys, along with their father, of course, uh, as well. And, and, you know, when we were, we were exchanging text messages the other day, because we're, we're pretty good mates, so we do that on occasion, um, you, you describe yourself as a proud mama. What makes, yeah. you, what makes you a proud mama? Oh, I think, you know, um, I like to think that, um, you know, I've, I've had a significant influence in, in, uh, in my boys' life, in my nephews' lives, in my nieces' lives. And so, um, so it's not so much a reflection on what, on myself per se, but it's actually um, my influence, I guess, on those around me. And, you know, nothing brings me greater joy than um, the legacy that you're going to leave behind. And so, um, yeah, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm claiming all, that, all of the um, things that my nieces and nephews and, and sons have done. And, and, you know, for me, that just makes your heart sing because, you know, you've, you've, you're doing your job okay and, uh, and you're, you're creating a generation of people who can um, contribute and bring something powerful to the human race. That's terrific. Now, we're going to come back and talk about your corporate career in a, in a moment as well, too. But uh, I'm interested in the notion of family and community. Do communities operate like families? Well, I think um, absolutely. Like what, the small community that I come from um, is, I see it in, as an extension of my family. Um, and certainly it was that when I was growing up. But that's not to take away also that there, there are also challenges within community as well. So, you know, we saw our fair share of, of that as well. But I think communities can be an extension uh, of, of family. Absolutely. I think that, you know, communities care about the wellness of everybody in, their com in community uh, and individuals. Communities care about, um, you know, whether there is enough to go around. Communities care about having enough jobs in their community uh, as well. You know, communities also band together when, um, you know, there, there are catastrophes like droughts and floods. And so it's, uh, you know, not dissimilar to a, to, a to a family network from my point of view. And I think the stronger that we can build those or strengthen those networks, the more powerful a community can be. And I think a community is a reflection, you know, of, of family. So, so what I'm hearing you talking about so far is about personal and collective responsibility. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, and I've shared this with you before. I've talked about the four R's and it was my father's brand. And so the four R's means, you know, respect, responsibility, relationships. And, um, and he'd say, remember what's gone before you, but remember them three fellas above you, you know? <laughs> and so, um, I, you know, I do, that's actually my mantra for life. And um, certainly my brothers and sisters use that too, too, uh, in the way that they, they present themselves and honour um, the, the planet in which they walk uh, today. So it's had an incredible impact on us um, as First Nation people in Australia. Uh, and and I, I know that it has an impact on you as well because they are, they are the fundamentals of um, a great society. So can you paint for me just a little bit of a picture about the sorts of things that people in your family do, the sorts of jobs, the sorts of businesses, the sorts of enterprises, those sorts of things? 
Yeah, I think, um, like, we're, we're doing okay, but the, what I'd like to also paint you is a picture of how we got to uh, where we are today. And so I was just having a yarn with my brothers um, just recently and we were talking about the things that we did and the things that my father did to ensure that we were, one, educated, and two, we had, you know, food in our belly uh, in order to get the best out of the learnings that, that, that were ahead of us. So we did things like, um, um, you know, pick up dead wool, which just really means the sheep had died and you go around the paddock and you pick the wool up off the dead sheep and, you know, we would bundle that up and, and go sell it. Uh, we would also, you know, hunt down pigs. Like, we're all good runners, so we'd go and chase the piglets and we'd fatten them for Christmas. My father would um, would shear cancer sheep because, um, you know, there were sheep that were, you know, had cancer and no, the shearers wouldn't shear them. Um, but my father would get them and we would shear those cancer sheep and, I mean, they're the most disgusting things to <laughs> ever have to shear. Um, and, you know, my father would also, and we would be with him, we'd go to the rubbish dumps and, uh, you know, we would find old batteries and we'd sell them or we would pull the copper out of our cars and uh, sell that. So we're very, um, I suppose, an inventive or, or um, we just did things that that just got the job done, I guess, in a sense. And so um, if there was a problem, we would find a solution to that, um, to that problem. And so um, while we might not have had, you know, all the things that money could buy, uh, we were rich beyond compare, really. When you think about the attitude that, that uh, my father, my mother, you know, grandparents instilled in us, um, but also our ability to dig deep uh, as well. So I guess they're, they're the foundations or the attitudes that we sort of grew up with, um, you know, this can-do attitude. And so, um, so today, um, you know, I'm in business and have been in business for about seven years. Um, my um, before that, I'd been in government um, for about 30 years, and you know, sort of uh, starting at the sort of entry level and going right through to senior management. Um, I've got a sister who works in health at a senior level, as um, and then another brother who's in business, another sister who's in business as well, um, in still in Buckhall and of, of all places, she's running a business out there, and uh, I mean just ingenious what she does she has a uh, an opportunity with the veterans affairs where she um, uh, has won a contract to go and clean all the war memorial graves uh, around the state um, and then I've got another brother who's in business uh, sorry who's in in uh, government here in Rockhampton as well so we've we've had a you know a, a variety of I suppose opportunities in our life and um, and as I said the foundation was built for us uh, as we were children growing up, always thinking and um, and it was always instilled in us that we could do anything that we wanted to do. Um, but having said that, um, we've also been fortunate to have had some people that have believed in us and that have provided a platform in which our voice could be heard as well. So, um, and I always acknowledge that because my history is a very different history to, to, to you know, non-Indigenous people. And so we've needed those non-Indigenous voices to create space for us. And that's exactly what's happened. They have created a space, not spoken for us, but they've created a space in which we can voice our own, um, our own desires.
listening to you talking about the wool and the sheep there, um, I, was, I was just reminded, as you know, my grand, my, on my mum's side, my grandparents were immigrants from Eastern Europe and they came here with nothing really. Yeah. Um, and, and they built their way up from the ground up. And uh, when I was a young bloke and just newly married and we had a baby on the way, my son James, who's 23 now and he's just got engaged. So, you know, that's, there's a bit of a cycle, but, um, <laughs> but you know, it's before he was born, we needed to turn one of the rooms into a nursery for him. And that meant that I had to, and that used to be my study. So I, I had to go out on the back veranda and uh, I don't think it had been done up since my grandfather, Moisha well, Morris had, um, had done it up in the, in the forties when they bought, bought the house and he put the back veranda on himself. And so as we were going through and, um, you know, took the walls off, discovered that, on one of the walls, they had he, he'd put in there just a little bit of insulation in the form of bats, but oh, the yeah. other, yeah. but the other, but the other wall he couldn't afford any more bats, so he just put the cardboard boxes that the bats came in. <laughs> and you know, I always wondered why it was so cold in winter and so warm in summer, but there it was. You know, it's it's they they made do with what they had. Yeah, you know, there's a reason why the foundations at the back were sinking, and that's because he could afford only one course of bricks to put mm. the foundation on. Mm. He couldn't afford two or three. You know, I'm not quite sure whether you should be using single courses of bricks as foundations anyway. But I think they <laughs> did what they were supposed to do in those days. Yeah. When, when I when I listen to what you're talking about there in terms of your family, and I'm going to come back to you and talk to you about what education in a family and a community looks like in a moment. Yeah. I'm hearing a story of values mm. that are put together into a framework. There's aspiration, there's enterprise, there's growth, there's legacy, there's links to other communities as well too. There's a whole story here, isn't there? Around oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because when growing up, you you think about things holistically. So when you're, you know, you're, you're having lessons from elders, even though you, you're, not, you're not aware that you're actually learning um, because learning becomes part of a holistic process. Um, you know, I, even when I think about how my grandmother would cook, um, there's, a, there's a much greater learning there. And, you know, that is about, you know, collaboration. It's actually preparing and um, thinking ahead. You know, it's such a strategic thing when I think about how my grandmother used to cook a sponge cake, for example. Oh, I'm, um, glad, you, I'm glad you're going to tell this story. I've been dying for you to <laughs> tell this story. Come on, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, yeah, so, you know, like my grandmother... Um, so the, it, the, the, and I talk about the ceremony of... Um, of the sponge cake because when I when I look back it was like a ceremony which began the night before the cake was going to be cooked and so you know the night before my grandmother would be sitting around the stove with my grandfather and they would have time to themselves and every now and then they would just let me sit with them and and listen to them talk and I always observed my grandmother um, just getting ready for this cake cooking the next day because what would also be happening was that the women would be coming over the next day as well. So the women were, you know, doing their women's business inside and having a conversation and the men would be, um, you know, going off and, and doing their bits and pieces. So the night before my grandmother would get the butter out, she'd get the, uh, all the utensils out because see the great thing about and how you make a good sponge cake is that everybody has everything has to be at room temperature 
So if you make that mistake of getting your egg out of the fridge in the morning and trying to make a sponge cake, it doesn't work. You've got to have the eggs at room temperature as well. So, and then everything's strategically placed um, along the bench. And so for me, that was about the, the preparation, you know. If you want to do something well, and my nan always cooked for the shows, the local shows. So, um, so she always taught us to, you know, do your preparation in order to, to um, be able to produce your best as well. And so, and then just before she would go to bed, she would then put a always gidgy on the fire and not a split piece, but a full gidgy log on the fire. And that was um, to make sure that the, you know, the gidgy would burn all night, but then the rich coals would be there in the morning in order to just stoke the fire up inside. What's, what's, what's gidgy? Gidgy is, uh, is timber. So it, it's, a, it's, it's the hardest timber that we have in the region that we come from. So, um, and it burns really long and slow. And so, you know, when we'd sort of sit around and have a yarn, we'd go, I'll just get the gidgy. We'll sit around the gidgy fire because you're not going to have long yarn. Um, and so same with cooking. It, it takes a long time to, to, to cook, you know. Um, and, and so, you know, the story goes on. And, the, you know, the next day, everything's out. And then my grandmother, you know, goes about preparing um, the, um, the cake. And, and, you know, when I look back and, and I get excited about things, you know, when the cake was cooking, we also whispered. I don't know what, I don't know that that made any difference, but it was like, you know, we were, we were sort of um, in reverence to this cake that was cooking in the, in the oven. And we certainly didn't walk around while the cake was cooking, or if we did, we had to take the long, long, long road, you know, uh, long walk. So um, there, there's... So in that, there's a real ceremony and there's a real process of, of um, what you have to do in order to get the best outcome. Um, and so, you know, that's just one example of, um, uh, you know, my learnings from my grandmother, I guess, in a sense, in that sense. Um, so, so again, it's, 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 it's a holistic thing, but if, if, we, if we start to tease it apart, there's all sorts of important learnings that are going on there. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Absolutely, aren't there? And it's... Yeah. And... and, and you know, if you look at the research that we've been doing at Circle over the over the past few years, it entirely fits within that notion of character mm. apprenticeship, doesn't it? It's, it's yeah, about... exactly. And so you don't, the cooking didn't actually, you didn't do that by yourself because what would happen was uh, the women would come over because um, they're part of the preparation. Um, they would sit and observe and, and sort of Nana's sort of instructing uh, the younger girls like myself, um, the best way of doing things, you know. Um, but also what was happening at the time was all these other rich conversations. And, uh, and so it was an opportunity for the women to come together to, um, or to laugh, have a, you know, joke about things, but also to talk about the serious side of things. And, um, you know, it could be young girls that are, you know, about to go into marriage or about to become a mother for the first time. And so, there's nothing richer than having those that have gone before you to, to share their experiences and their, you know, their joys, but also the challenges of, you know, living a life. And so, um, so even though I talk about cooking a cake, there's, as you said, Phil, there's a holistic richness there that, um, that, that is a part of that whole thing. So, um, 
I can't really talk about the cake without really talking about everything else that was happening at the, yeah, at the no. same time because you don't get it. You know, you don't get yeah, the richness yeah, yeah. of the experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but you can talk about cake anytime because cakes yeah. are work good. Tell me, how do you do that in your family now? I mean, not. It might be making a cake. It might be mm. learning up, learning other things. Do you, does does your family still function in that way? Well, look, it is a little bit different because it's you know it's ever evolving and cultures ever you know evolve. And in fact, my grandmother always said to me, if I did things exactly the same as her, she'd be pretty disappointed because it means that I haven't evolved. I haven't done my bit. Um, but certainly, I do use analogies a lot in, uh, in the way that I. I speak and, and influence, um, and particularly with younger people, um, uh, to, to be able to give them a, a, a sense of what was and, and how to look at things holistically. I think analogy is a really great way to, way to go. And also, um, the way that I use this today, it's, it's a really great tool to engage young people in particular about the way that I see things and how I've learned about things and... Um, and you know what? What my story? What they get out of sharing my story with them? And so you, all of a sudden you start having this bit of a collaboration happening. And so what? What comes out of that is, um, and what I've learned is that you know elders will show you things first, and then we'll do things together. And then I want to see you do it yourself. So you're actually making sure that you know people have the skills and the knowledge to be able to take this forward um, and that they become into, uh, independent of you going forward in a sense because they need to take the story forward because you're not always going to be there. So. And, and that's exactly the pedagogy. That's exactly the teaching and learning. Again, that, you know, our research yeah. talk about that learn, do, teach thing. Oh. Can I just pause for a moment? I, I'm re- I, I, I always love chatting with you and it's part of the joy of being able to do this series where is we're going to get a chance to do this so i just want to talk about some serious stuff for a, for a moment and and perhaps offer a contrast here yeah if i look at some of the negative stereotypes that are unfairly attributed to indigenous folk they don't talk about personal and collective responsibility they talk no. about the, the opposite of that they will allude to a primitivism which will talk about a static culture as opposed to a continuing and evolving culture. They don't talk about the richness of culture. They talk about how few artifacts or how few items of civilization they were. It's very much a deficit mentality. It's very much a reductionist approach. And what I'm hearing from you is a story that is both particular to Aboriginal Australia, but there's elements, this could be anywhere in the world a lot of what you're talking about. You know, this is this is a human story of enterprise, of achievement, of family, mm. of, I mean, you know, there's, how do we help people to understand the richness of culture in this way? It's a really great question. And, and this is really just a simplistic solution. So I, my, my view is you have to create the space in which to have the conversation. Uh, a non-judgmental space where people can be free to ask the questions that they want to ask, but but also, so storytellers need an audience, is what I'm saying. And so um, I can't do what I do without creating the space in which an audience can come and listen um, or to be invited into that space. So 
for me, um, you know, what you've created and what you've invited me into through Game Changers is exactly what we should be doing. It should be this simple. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, that what, I, what I bring to the conversation is a richness that is also part of your heritage. You know, I don't just say that, you know, my, I have 65,000 years um, in which to um, draw upon but we actually have 65,000 plus years in which to draw upon. So you can choose to be a part of that or you can, you know, choose to be part of the last 232 years. Um, and so, um, you know, the invitation is there from my point of view. Um, I just need an audience in which to, um, to tell the story. There's so much I, I want to ask about. How do we take this from an individual to a community? and the broader community how do we have this conversation beyond our families because we have to have this conversation in our families and through our families but then beyond our families as a region or as a nation how do we how, how do you reckon we do this well i think it's um through the it's through a set of principles because what i do is to engage through a set of principles that have been set in place later uh, long before I was ever around, long before my grandmother was ever around. So, um, so for example, you know, setting up a yarning circle or setting up a knowledge circle or setting up a circle in which to have a conversation, there are a number of principles that we can engage to do that. And when people agree to the principles of the engagement, um, then that, that sets us all free, really, because it allows everybody to have a voice in that circle or in that community or in that family. And interestingly, um, at the moment, Phil, I just sent off um, about 20 yarning sticks yesterday to Melbourne because I'm actually going to do this. I'm actually going to teach people how to set up a yarning circle based on a series of principles, and there's only three. Um, and so uh, that's what I learned from my grandmother and my grandfather and my father. And so... I've been a bureaucrat using these principles and it's, you know, it's uh, held me in good stead, you know. I talk to you using these principles and, uh, um, you know, it's working well, you know. We're back doing some work together again yeah. now. So um, so I think that, um, you know, when people engage in, um, in deep listening around some common principles, um, it's not dependent on one person to do this, but... Um, we have an opportunity um, for collectivism, um, certainly in Australia, but, but, you know, why not around the world? We're going to finish up this particular episode just very shortly. Do you just want to quickly share with me what those, those common principles are? Um, yeah, well, they're, they're crazy little principles, but um, so one of the things is, um, so you, you, get, you have a yarning stick and the first principle is that Whoever has the yarning stick has authority to speak. Everybody else has to listen. And so you have no opportunity to interject or, or anything uh, when somebody has a yarning stick. The good thing about the yarning stick too is those of us who are introverts know at some time the extroverts have to shut up and we're going to get a chance to speak. So that's, <laughs> that's the good thing about it. The second principle is that when you finish speaking, the next person cannot speak until they speak count to six kangaroos. So that is one kangaroo, two kangaroos, three kangaroos, four kangaroos, five kangaroos, six kangaroos. And the reason for that is you want to get to three kangaroos because you actually want to honour the speaker that spoke before you. 
And then you get three kangaroos to think about what you're going to say anyway. So, you know, three kangaroos is a long time to think about what you're going to say um, because it actually stops people from filling space. And, of course, you're, you're counting quietly in your head. Um, so you're leaving this, leaving this clear space in which the, uh, to allow people to think about what what, what's been said. Um, and then the third principle is that when you sit in a yarning circle, you must be able to see everybody upstream from you and downstream from you uh, as well. So as a sign of respect. And so you open the yarning circle up and then you close the yarning circle. So I guess there's five principles there, but the, the opening of the yarning circle, that's really always about you want to actually understand how people are feeling um, in, in that circle and whether people need more support than, you know, what they're sort of, so because it, you'll set it up in a way that people will be happy to tell you about really how they're feeling um, or not feeling uh, on that day. And then closing the yarning circle at the end of the day is as important because as my grandmother would say, you want to make sure that people are okay and are in the right spirit before they leave your presence because you have a responsibility um, for everyone that sits in your yarning circle as well. And if people are not okay, then they don't, you, you don't send them on their way. You, you nurture and you look after people before they're right to go. So when you engage in those sorts of principles, that's actually about looking after the human spirit. Uh, we can all do that. You don't have to be an Aboriginal person to do this stuff. Of course not. And it's, it's, it's funny, you, you call these funny little, you know, simple things and, and so on. The, the most sophisticated people take simple things and do them very, very well with, mm. with, with elegance, you know, and, and uh, we, can, we, we run the risk of overcomplicating things. Mm. Um, I think the biggest challenge of all of this is to enter into a space where there's mutual respect because mm. if we can't do that, that just, that's a very, very hard thing to do history gets in the way of that and we're going to talk about that next time we're going to talk a little bit about history we're going to talk about a little bit about hurt and we're going to talk about a little bit about healing mm. um, uh, i'm really looking forward to it leanne thanks very much for this conversation and i'll speak to you soon thanks phil the game changers podcast is produced by oliver cummins for orbital productions and supported by circle the center for innovation research creativity and leadership in education go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you're hearing.